Welcome to season four of the Research Briefs podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Streveler, professor of engineering education in the College of Engineering at Purdue University. In Research Briefs, we'll speak with engineering education researchers about what their lives are like, what they are finding out, and how their research is being used. I am pleased to welcome back Dr. James Hawley, Jr. to Research Briefs. James was featured on episode 10 of this podcast when he was a freshly graduated PhD, and we spoke about his autoethnography for his dissertation, which was titled The Coming of James, A Critical Autoethnography of Teaching Engineering to Black Boys as a Black Man. James is now an assistant professor of urban science, technology, engineering, and mathematics education at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan, his hometown. We've asked him to let us know what the last couple of years have been like for him, and particularly to help us think about what it means to be an anti-racist researcher. So, James, I'm very pleased to have you back. Um, I will say that uh, I'm uh, particularly happy to have you at this time because the civil rights icon, John Lois, has just passed on, and I see you as a new generation of people carrying on his mission. So it's, it's heartwarming to have this particular timing uh, as we're recording this in late July 2020. So again, James, thanks for joining us again. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Uh, it's an extreme pleasure to not only have been on once, but twice. <laughs> um, so thank you for having me back and um, considering my perspective and story valuable uh, to share with others. Well, you're very, very welcome. During episode 10, you spoke in detail about your research, and we'll be reposting that original episode as a bonus feature this month. So there's not need to go into detail about that now. But can you give the listeners a bit of context about your passion for working with Black and urban youth, particularly in your hometown of Detroit? Absolutely. And I mean, I would say even much has changed in my research since then, given my position, but also just life experiences and um, just thinking about some of those core things differently. And so primarily being a black man growing up in Detroit, um, even when I left to go to school, I knew that I wanted to return to use whatever skills, intellect I had to be of service. And so now that I've had, I've developed this scholarly perspective of the experience of black people in urban spaces, um, as well as other non-black folks. Um, it's, uh, matured my understanding of what needs to be done, uh, shaped in different ways, but also I've realized my own limitations in some ways <laughs> and just the need to be focused in various ways. And so um, it, things have shifted, but primarily in my current role as a teacher educator, I focus on developing critically conscious STEM educators. Mm -hmm. um, and what that means to me is helping uh, teachers see teachers of science, technology, engineering, mathematics see the social and political dynamics that influence our understandings and doing of STEM. Mm -hmm. um, so historically, uh, primarily science and math have been seen as these objective disciplines where your identity, your cultural influences, your perspective individually does not influence the nature of science and math. 
and with our core problems and how we go about it. And slowly but surely, we've been as a society realizing that that's not true, right? And, and being more honest about what particular ways our identity and our culture influences those things. And so I'm looking at not necessarily acknowledging that, but how do we then teach the disciplines in light of that? Um, but also in light of the experiences of the, of the learners that we're teaching. Um, so what racism do they have to navigate? What um, uh, classism and, and disadvantages in their social context they have to navigate when they come into the classroom and when they exit our classroom? Mm-hmm. How can we be supportive in the way that we teach as well as the context of the environment that we develop? Mm-hmm. Now, when we first spoke with you, you were uh, working as a, a resource person, right, for yes. uh, one of the high schools. So um, I believe it was Martin Luther King Jr. Senior High School. Correct. Um, can you say a bit about where you are now? We just mentioned your title and what you've been doing since your last podcast appearance. Yeah, so I've been trying to figure out how that end up here. <laughs> um, as you may recall, and many others at Purdue who I've been in communication with, like my four years at Purdue, I explicitly said I'd never be a professor. Um, so all the preparatory experiences, pre-faculty this, that I didn't even consider um, because that was not within my paradigm to pursue that. And so while at King, in the, the school I was at prior to, what I realized is, one, having not been trained in the educational field. So at Purdue, in my doctoral degree, I gained some familiarity with education from a scholarly perspective. But having not been trained, I realized there were many limitations on how I could see myself useful to the educational space. Um, but also, I saw that just the historic disinvestment in public schools in Detroit and just the nature of the turmoil living in an urban, high, impoverished place. Me bringing a research perspective, like there was too much on the ground to to adequately address and really process what the research says. Um, and I guess at the surface level, I was coming from an engineering background, and engineering is growing in the K twelve or P twelve arena, but it's not fully realized. There, it's not common, and so. There was also like, all right, can you have those math? Can you have those science? But there wasn't an explicit connection point to engineering. And so I think that some of the folks were struggling to see, well, how can you be relevant to this space? Really, you know, as a doctor, we respect your intellect, but trying to figure that out. Personally, um, it was a, a much faster pace. Like there are multiple fires that are being put out on a consistent basis. There are various perspectives on what the best way to serve urban Black students is. Um, many different things, you know, then the political struggles. And so I realized that I was not able to do what I really wanted to do. And so in the process of exploring uh, different jobs, um, uh, Chanel Beebe, uh, who was, was currently a student at Purdue and uh, the engineering education program, doctoral program, she informed me about the current job opening. She learned about it from Donovan Colquitt, who we were, uh, the three of us along with Deli, Deli on Tober, we're on a, um, a panel at ASEE talking about our experiences as black folks being in engineering. And so through the, those folks, that network, I found out about this position. And when I read it, I was like, and even Chanel said it when she sent it to me, she's like, this seems perfect for you. And so there was this personal wrestling with 
do I want to go into the academy? Um, could I be successful? What would it take away? And what I had to realize was I had such a negative view of the academy being, you know, tenure track, being very stressful, people, most people being unhappy, um, research being limited in terms of its impact of actually serving people on the ground and practitioners that it really prevented me from seeing on our turn, the other side of it, like what positives were there, what opportunities were there. And so through circumstances of needing a job and having these skills that fit there um, and trying two other positions that didn't work out, I was forced to really reckon with and, and think through, could this be a possibility? And so through that process, I realized that my background involved a lot of direct service, working with students directly, but I can kind of move, I guess it would be upstream and work with the teachers and educators of students, right? How can I replicate ideas that I have and perspectives I have that I think are unique and different or just lacking, you know, whether they're not unique, they're just lacking being a black male. How can I replicate that through future educators? And so taking that viewpoint, I saw a lot of opportunity and it really changed the way I saw uh, the potential of being a professor. And so I went through the process and earned an opportunity and I'm grateful to um, be in this position to utilize scholarship and to teach students and to uh, figure out ways to navigate this juggling process of research, service, and teaching <laughs> that I'm still trying to figure out. So. And you've just finished your last academic year, your first academic first, year, correct? Yes, yeah. I just finished my first academic year. Uh, taught a couple courses, delve into the grant writing process and researching and trying to navigate all of those, you know. So I'm a professor now, you know, and dealing with the, the capital or reputation of what that carries and being seen differently. Um, but also just learning the, the academy from a different viewpoint. Um, so being a student, I had my lens and things I thought were wrong or not right or, or messed up. And so now being on the other side, I have a whole different viewpoint of what's messed up, what's wrong and what, what to navigate, particularly being in the midst of a global pandemic where I mean, it significantly changed. I mean, everything really, but in particular, um, the transmission or methods of delivery at, at a higher level and, you know, budget concerns and just so many different things. So it's been a huge learning process from very many angles. Have they made a decision at Wayne State about what is going to happen as far as online or not? Or Yeah, so they didn't really make a decision. What they did is they asked professors how they prefer to offer instruction and then reported out what professors decided. And so there are, I forget the percentages, but there's still a level of traditional or certain number of traditional courses um, there are some restrictions in terms of the number of students you have in your course. Uh, like if you're over 30, I believe you have to do online learning. Um, but so some of that, then there's some hybrid between face-to-face -face and online. And then you have the online, which is broken up between remote where you're doing synchronous. So you're both on at the same time. And then the asynchronous, which is considered online. Um, so uh, they, they just reported those numbers, talked about different procedures for folks who do come online, trainings you have to do, um, you know, forms you have to fill out and things like that. But they did not make a university-wide decision that we're going to be this or that, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is produce some interesting responses. <laughs> yes. Um, because students, well, we've, we did some surveys within our department. We saw that many students still want to be in person. 
And so it creates this situation where you can have students that since the university gives the opportunity for you to be in person, it seems as us as professors, like we're cheating them out of an experience or, you know, um, so they can be disgruntled and they think that we're the barrier as opposed to like health concerns and precautions and various other limitations. So in addition to the pandemic, the whole world has woken up to the reality of systemic racism Mm -hmm. and the need to dismantle racism, which um, is sometimes called being anti-racist. That has become very apparent to people. I know you have thoughts about how to promote anti-racism in engineering education research, Mm -hmm. and I would very, very much like to hear what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, so I would even say that the the pandemic itself kind of laid the groundwork for this recent awakening um, because data show, which I don't think we need a whole bunch of, well, data showed that um, Black people were disproportionately um, dying as a result of uh, contracting the virus. And um, not only black people, but other non-white people. And so when they dug a little further, they saw that it was due to these underlying conditions which could be tied and linked to um, racist practices that either limited the quality of um, health services, limited the quality of nutritional services and opportunities. And so all these income dynamics, like all these things that... Um, many folks would generally describe as systemic racism um, provided these, these conditions that made people more susceptible to dying, specifically black people as a result of this. And so I think that caught a lot of people's attention, you know, folks who paid attention to those things prior to, it wasn't a surprise. It was actually um, further depressing and distressing to see like, man, just another thing that we have to navigate and deal with. And so, um, so I think that was the precursor and then there was a, a string of public black murders, um, Ahmaud Arbery, uh, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, I think, were the three that really launched the recent movements. And, um, and so some of those were videotaped, some were either by police or um, former police, citizen vigilantes. And so uh, well, I think that all of this culminated to create this current movement. And then even when people begin to protest and, and respond, um, public killings of black folks by police and others continue. And so we definitely have a, a different level of attention. And many folks within their respective careers or disciplines have asked, how do we be anti-racist, as you said? And so I think the first thing that comes to mind to me is people have to, um, one, this is a big step. Let me start there. Right. So America, historically, before America was America, engaged in racist practices and and had racist policies and culture. And so as long as it's been a country longer than that's been embedded in the nation. And so for many folks who are just coming into this to jump to anti-racism without fully identifying, acknowledging and reckoning with past racism is a huge jump. And so I think my first recommendation is just like, take it slow, right? Like just absorb and embrace what you haven't been seen and then ask questions why. And I think that really drives me to encourage folks to do some self-reflection 
um, critical self-reflection of what was your understanding of these issues prior to even this year? Um, how is that changing? How is that shifting? And, and then think about what you want to do forward. So before we even think about ourselves as researchers and engineers and educators, I think just as James, as Ruth, like, what does that mean? Um, and then as a citizen, what does it mean? Um, because one of the issues I saw even prior to this is that a lot of folks, even who do research, like their work focuses on um, cultural issues, diversity and inclusion, but it's not as strong as it could be because their life is not built around those same principles and ideas. And so I think, you know, since we're in a new moment, it will be helpful if folks absorb these principles and adapt practices in their personal life and then allow that to shape and inform um, their work life or their career. Um, moving from there, I think it, it requires a few things like um, people asking, are we willing to uh, do away with engineering as we know it? Because just as the, the, the country and the nation was shaped by racist practice, practices, engineering, how it's defined and practice and how we understand it also is shaped by very racist practices and norms and things like that. And so to truly reform and then become anti-racist means to work against our, our conception of what engineering is and how it's practiced. Um, and so when it, then when we think about research, things like what questions we ask, uh, what frameworks we use, what methods we use, um, citation practices, who do we cite? Like those things have to be transformed, not even reformed, but transform and restructure the language you use. And so there's a couple of papers I read recently, I think kind of get perspective about this. So Mejia and I, Alex Mejia, and I should have looked at the other authors, I forget their names, but Mejia, Mejia et al. in 2018, they wrote a paper about um, looking at the critical theoretical frameworks that we're using in engineering education and really doing a systematic review of their frameworks are that where they people using these frameworks and were they using asset based approaches to talk about their research or where deficit based approaches used. And so they were trying to see how these theories frame the questions that people um, explored and studied in terms of power, privilege and oppression. And I think that work was very helpful in showing that um, even though folks have adopted critical theories, they're not utilizing them mm-hmm. um, in effective ways to, to transform the way that we see who we study and how we study. Um, another example I think of is recently at this past a- ASEE convention, um, Lisa Benson had a distinguished lecture talking about um, the language and the taxonomy we use in engineering education. And so uh, just causing attention that the top 25 cited papers did not have words like uh, racism, uh, ethnicity, uh, things like diversity we use seldomly. And so these folks recent examples, but I think historically it meant uh, the work of folks like Kelly Cross, Ebony McGee, Brian Burt are some researchers who show how to do research from a lens that is not only not racist, as even Kendi says and Angela Davis, but is anti-racist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I talked a lot there. So I'll give <laughs> you a particular question within that. So it's made me think of uh, the podcast with Julie Martin about her research and how she realized that um, the methods that she was using really were colonialist mm-hmm. and and this big difference between I am the 
a Gus researcher with the knowledge and you are my subject, you know, and, and really beginning to see um, the, uh, her, what used to be called participants as really co-researchers and just mm-hmm. the shock when you realize, oh my, I've, I've never thought of it that way before. Um, so, I wanted to ask, how are the people in Detroit doing? How are the the, the young people that you you work with and that you touch? How are they doing with all of this craziness in the world? Yeah, that's a tough question because there's this mix of folks who are trying to. Um, prepare for the upcoming school semester and just like the fall in general, all that that brings since the summer is near its end. And, you know, there's a lot of conversation around the public school system and will they open? Should they open? Um, so there's a lot of back and forth there uh, while still navigating the ongoing pandemic. So that overlaps because that's what informs their anxiety about what's coming as well as this, this, this racial tumult. And what that means is like, there's different aspects of this. There's watching people or seeing the promotion or the uh, constant replaying of black people being killed um, and uh, not knowing whether the perpetrators will be held accountable. Um, but in the middle of that, then you watch people dialogue and argue around whether they, the killing was justified uh, and then you see the reaction. And so folks are protesting the things that will happen. So recently in Detroit, I think about a week and a half ago, um, there was a gentleman who was killed in front of a house where, you know, police showed up at the house. They were arresting someone. Uh, he came out to defend his friend. Um, and it was alleged that he shot at the police officers and then the police officer fired, police fired back and killed him. And so there's a lot of unrest around that in Detroit with different protests. And so you have protests on top of protests, like the protests that were initiated following the murder of George Floyd that have been going on for probably about a month now, now connected to protests of a recent incident. And um, there were other incidents where the local police department uh, officer ran over protesters um, with his vehicle. Um, And so the response of the chief was unsatisfactory. And so there's just a lot of frustration, a lot of exhaustion, um, a lot of uncertainty and anxiety. And then you still have people who are grieving from deaths, people who have died as a result of the pandemic, um, people who are ill and, you know, changing dynamics of who adhering to the social uh, guidelines around physical distancing. So it's just a lot. I don't really know how to, capture what is really going on with the city, but there's certainly a lot of activity, um, a lot of frustration, a lot of anger, a lot of hurt. Um, and people are just trying to figure out how to, to move forward in the midst of already present harsh realities that have mm-hmm. been compounded and exacerbated. Mm-hmm. So what's next for you? As well, well as you can tell during this. Yeah, I think, and so I'll connect this to the question around anti-racist engineering education. Like for me, I'm trying to figure, well, how then does that inform how I do my work? Uh, how do I um, 
how am I working again and trying to prepare urban teachers is thinking through how do you teach science and mathematics while students are navigating the pandemic? Um, whether that has perhaps taken some of their family members, taken some of their friends, it has changed the way that they socialize with friends and family members. Um, and the, again, the pre-existing conditions due to racism, like the pre-existing racism has not changed or has not improved. And so they have this addition, these, these new ways in which they have to navigate things. How do you teach math in that context? How do you research um, best practices for engineering identity development and um, consideration of engineering epistemologies and things like that? So for me, it's really trying to figure out how, like what my, what I can retain from my previous research trajectory and what needs to shift. And mm -hmm. I think that's part of the process is always shifting and being willing to adapt due to what we learn in the circumstances. Um, and for me, it's really been trying to connect with local communities. So outside of the academic community, um, connect with people who are in schools, uh, community organizations that serve residential areas. Um, so that what I'm doing is not just, it doesn't have this kind of superficial impact where it serves the academy and it gives me tenure and I can continue to research, but it's actually a connection to the youth who are in the local communities, who are Detroiters, the, and the adults and families as well. So that's really what I'm trying to do is write off my dissertation. So get that out and published. Um, I think it has a lot to say about this, um, this concept but also and then develop a new trajectory around um, in a post-pandemic mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, context with this and serving black students and families look like. One thing that I think this kind of absolute turmoil provides as an opportunity because things get shaken up so much and so many injustices have become even more apparent to people. There is an opportunity for new behaviors and new systems to, to now be adopted. And, um, you know, we'll hope that we can help push things in to a useful trajectory. Um, well, um, yeah, I definitely feel like we can help, but I also feel like we can we can take action and be, you know, hold people accountable, right? Yes. I think that one of the things that came out is there were a lot of statements that people, institutions and organizations were making. Um, so now that gives an opportunity to hold folks accountable to what someone else has verbalized is important that happened across engineering education um, that happened within my institution. Um, so I think there's definitely the mental and emotional uh, aspiration and hope for greater things, but there's also the practical work of um, within ourselves doing the work um, to bring, make it a reality, but also holding others accountable to actualize certain things. You know, mm -hmm. I, one thing I didn't mention yet is also we have this political context of upcoming presidential election. Right. Uh, what does that mean then? And that's why I talk about individual, like there's need to be some individual work. So we see not just within the, the world of engineering, but our broader nation and world, what work do I need to do to see anti-racism actualized? Um, and so you know, that, that is where I have to, I aspire and I do have a hope, but also like there's work to be, plenty of work to be done. Um, yeah. And I think also trying, for me, that means trying not to get overjoyed or underjoyed. <laughs> um, not be 
avoiding being too excited just because historically there have been moments like these, right? Where the next month or the next year or the next five years or the next 10 years, things are radically different. Mm-hmm. Um, but also not being so cynical and pessimistic that I cannot see the value of what is happening in this moment, right? There mm-hmm. are people legitimately paying attention. There are people um, legitimately trying to figure out how to not just do better, but do different um, and, and transform their existence and as citizens, as researchers. And so um, it's good to have conversations like these, good to witness folks and be you know be able to observe the transformations that people are making as well as myself i mean i still have work to do in particular areas so that's that's where i am mm-hmm. is trying to maintain this kind of balance this level-headedness <laughs> mm-hmm. well we are uh hoping that you'd be willing to i hear i'm using hope a lot i would like <laughs> you to invert invite you to uh tell us what you keep doing um I know that you are a person who is really courageous and wanting to make sure that the things you do make a difference to the mm-hmm. community um, and to bridge that ivory tower research world with exactly. having somebody really have their life be bettered. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So would you want to have any closing comments or advice or words of wisdom to help us through this next year or so? Yeah, I'd say two things. One, you know, for those who are interested, I will say that, and I tried to name some names earlier, but a lot of work, uh, what can be useful has been done, right? So, you know, within our engineering education research community, I think, you know, folks looking at old papers, whether from conferences or um, published papers, of different talks and conversations to see what has already been said that perhaps we weren't, not perhaps, that we were blinded to or other folks were blinded to, that they didn't see, but it was there, right? Specifically non-white people, um, folks who are in disenfranchised and marginalized communities, I think it would be very helpful to go back and look at their works um, within engineering education and, and just broader commentary. Um, and then secondly, i share a quote from... Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who said that uh, change does not roll in on the wheels of inevitability, but comes through continuous struggle. And so I I want to also encourage folks to realize that if this is what you want to do, it's going to require an ongoing battle internally and externally. You know, that this is indeed a fight um, and there may not be an end within your lifetime, um, right? Like there has to be an ongoing wrestling with the ways in which racism pervades around our society, um, again, within and even much far beyond engineering education. Well, those are wonderful closing words, James. And again, thank you. And I, I'm curious to know what life will bring you. <laughs> yes, you're welcome. And again, it's uh, my pleasure. Always a pleasure to connect with you. Research Briefs is produced by the School of Engineering Education at Purdue. Thank you to Patrick Vogt for composing our theme music. A transcript of this podcast can be found by Googling Purdue Engineering Education Podcast. And please check out my blog, ruthstrebler.wordpress.com.